Thank you, Mike. Uh, well, it's hard to believe it, but here we are on the last day of the week, our last day going through the book of Isaiah. And uh, before I begin, I do want to just uh, give a few thank yous. These are probably not exhaustive. There's so many people to thank, uh, people who make the ministry at NBC uh, worthwhile and, and a blessing to all of us. But I'd like to thank Doug, who, who oversees all of the adult ministries here and does so much work for so many people. I think Family Feud got to him last night, and he's not here today. A well-deserved break. And uh, John who is the director here, and the whole team at NBC, thank you so much. I, I, I know it's a great privilege and an honor to be invited to open the Word of God with you, and I don't take that for granted. It's also been great to sit under Dr. Stephen West and his teaching in the evenings. It's been wonderful to, uh, to just learn about the metaphors of God and the, the attributes of God, and it's been, it's been great to partner with him. I also want to thank the Weebs. What a blessing they've been. Uh, as Steve has already said, not only do they sing, but they worship, and they draw us into worship, and that's been wonderful. Lastly, but not leastly, I want to thank you for coming back every day. I don't take that for granted either. I know that there are many things that you could be doing, and as I was preparing this series, uh, one of the things I was concerned about was, will I bring enough clarity to the text that will entice you to come back the next day? So whether or not I succeeded in that, your graciousness in, in coming and opening the book of Isaiah with me has been greatly appreciated. So now we're on the last leg of the journey. I'm going to give you a nerdy joke. We'll see if you've been here the whole week. Let's not pull a Hezekiah and trip at the finish line. You get that? Well, if you don't, go back to chapters 36 or 39. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, without your spirit, we understand nothing. We cannot abide in Christ. We cannot open your word and perceive what it is you're trying to say. And so we thank you that your spirit indwells us who believe. He teaches us and instructs us. And yet again, Lord, we come to you through him, pleading with you to open our eyes, unstop our ears, unseal the book. I pray that you would speak through me, in spite of me, that you would exalt yourself and draw us into communion with you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Open your Bibles to chapter 61, and as you're finding your place, would you please stand? Isaiah, the 61st chapter, verses 1 through 3. This is the word of God. He is speaking to us through his servant Isaiah from over 2,700 years ago. These are the scriptures of Jesus Christ, the word of God. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me 
because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The word of God. Please be seated. Does anything from this passage ring familiar in your ears? These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the day when he was in that synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and he asked for the Isaiah scroll, and he took the scroll, and he took some time to get to the end of the scroll, and he opened it to this passage. And he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll And he looked at the men and women and perhaps the the newly bar mitzvahed young boys. And he said, today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Now all these people in the synagogue knew Jesus and they knew his family. They said, is this not Joseph's son? Is this not the, the boy that we watched grow up? And at first they were pretty excited that he said that it was fulfilled, but then he pressed the issue and he said, these are the implications of what I mean. Now of all the passages that Jesus could have picked, why this one? He had the entire Hebrew Bible, our entire Old Testament. He could have picked any passage at all. Why this one? Why not Genesis 12, one to three? Why not Leviticus one to five, or some portion thereof, which is the sacrifices. Or if you want to get into the book of Isaiah, why not Isaiah 53? Why this one? Well, to answer this question, we must go back and understand this passage, not just in the context of this last section of the book, but in the context of the whole book. And today what I hope we will see that this passage will hold together the entire book of Isaiah. First, let's review what we've been going through on our journey through the mountain range of Isaiah. We started, it seems like a long time ago now, on Tuesday in the introduction, chapters one through six. And in the introduction, I hope you know what I'm about to say, uh, Isaiah presented their present reality, sinful, corrupt, wicked, rebellious, idol-worshipping, and God's promised reality for his people, holy, righteous, 
a light to the nations. And we ask the question is how are they going to get from their present reality to their promised reality? And that's what we've been watching through the entire book. Our, our first effort at this was in the second major section of the book, chapters seven through 39. And the whole issue of these chapters, if you wanna to go to the next slide, is trust. Trust. If you're going to be taken from your present reality to your promised reality, you have to trust that God can do it. You have to trust that he is the God in heaven who is all-powerful and a lot of other big words that Steve said last night. And that he can take you from present to promise. We saw two kings, both of them ultimately failed, although Hezekiah almost succeeded in trusting God. But, but in that section, we find out that the whole nation has failed to trust God. And this is informative for us. Through the lens of Isaiah, the major problem that led to the exile, uh, although we could say, was it idol worship? Yes. Was it a lack of social justice? Yes. Was it corruption and polytheism and all these other things? Yes, 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 yes. But according to Isaiah, at the root of all of that was a lack of trust. If you don't trust God, all these other symptoms are going to come. And so God took his people into exile, and that's implicit at the end of chapter 39. So we get to the third major section of the book, chapters 40 through 55. And the people are sitting in exile. Isaiah is speaking to the people some 150 years later through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, God's going to deliver you because that's the kind of God that he is. He took you into exile and though exile was supposed to be the final judgment for you, you've broken the covenant and it's over, he, was going, he is going to deliver you out of Babylon. That's 40 through 48. But if he delivers you from Babylon, that's not a full deliverance because you're just going to sin again. So there's a greater deliverance that's necessary. He needs to deliver you from sin. And that's chapter 42, 1 through 9, and 49 through 55, the suffering servant. Now we get to today's section, the last major section in the book, chapters 56 through 66. And in these chapters, what the prophet Isaiah does is he reflects upon, okay, now that you've been delivered, you've been delivered from Babylon, you've been delivered from sin, potentially, if you believe, if you trust. How are you going to live? Are you going to take that for granted and sin again? Should we sin all the more that grace may abound? By no means, says who? Isaiah. But yes, you're right, Paul. See, Paul was an Isaiahic scholar, he didn't invent that doctrine. So in these chapters, Isaiah is projecting himself 200 years into the future. He's speaking to a people who have been delivered from Babylon. And we asked the question yesterday, will they just go on sinning? And the answer, unfortunately, that we see in these chapters is some will, yes, but not all. There will be a small remnant of contrite sinners who want to trust God. And God says, I'll deliver you. I'll carry you to a new heavens and a new earth. We have a lot to go through today. I'm gonna to carry us 
through most of the mountain range until we get to the peak. And we're going to spend our last moments at the summit of this last major section. I said that uh, Isaiah 24 to 27 was the highest peak in the book. And I said that because it gives us the greatest vantage point. We are at the wedding supper of the Lamb in those chapters. That's after everything is accomplished. So the suffering servant, it's not that, that his crucifixion and, and the first coming of Christ is less important than the banquet feast at the end. All it is is it's the means to that end. He came to die so that he didn't have to destroy us, so that he could invite us up on high, so that he could exalt us with the highly exalted one. And so we get the greatest vantage point. But today we have a mountain peak that rivals 24 to 27. And that's what we read in chapter 61. So let's get started. I'm going to go very quickly. Don't worry if you don't get it all. There's much I want to say, but I'll say what I hopefully is necessary. To begin with, we're going to, just as we did two days ago, we're going to start on the outer edges of the mountain. We're going to work our way up in both directions. So the first Two sections at the very front and the very end of this last final section are uh, Isaiah 56, 1 to 8, and Isaiah 66, verses 18 to 24. And basically what these uh, sections, these passages tell us is that just because you have received the grace of God, that does not give you license to sin, Just because you are a a biological descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that the deliverance of the servant is for you. The deliverance of Cyrus out of Babylon might have been for you, but that doesn't guarantee you the double deliverance. And so you see there that the only people that are truly welcome to worship God are the contrite in heart. And Isaiah is going to fill that out more fully. But what's very shocking about these outer two sections is that there are Gentiles that are approved by God for worship. That there are Gentiles that, that, are, uh, that are scooped up in the loving arms of God and invited to worship him while there are descendants of Abraham who are not invited. This is how the book ends, 66, 22, and 23. And this really captures it all. For the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to talk about that. That's the new cosmos that I make shall remain before me, says, my, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. If you're contrite in heart, whether you're a biological descendant of Abraham or a pagan Gentile, if you trust the Lord, and if you take the double deliverance of the suffering servant, you're invited to the new heavens and the new earth to worship God forever. But that's not how the book ends. The meek, that's who's invited to eternal life, shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. That's the end of the book. So there's two paths, two possibilities. Eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth or go to the place where the worm never dies, where the fire is not quenched. Do you know what's interesting? That's exactly how our Bible ends, Revelation 21 and 22. There's two options. 
You trust God, you receive grace through the suffering servant, you're resurrected, you live forever with him in a new heavens and a new earth, or you reject him, you potentially take grace for granted, you think that it's licensed to sin, and you are cast aside, thrown into the lake of fire. So let us not take God's grace for granted. Moving up the mountain. Inside these outer flanks are two more passages. The first goes from Isaiah 56, verse 9 to 58, 14. On the other side, we have 63, 15 to 66, 17. These are the longest sections in this final major section. And what we see here, it's the tale of two Israels. So the focus is back on the people who are in the land, the people who have been delivered from Babylon. And we have two Israels. We have apostate Israel, and we have contrite Israel. Apostate Israel was at one time a part of the remnant. But no sooner does God deliver a remnant out of exile than a major portion of that remnant that has been saved goes back to their old ways of sinning. They resume their life of rebellion and idolatry and social oppression and self-exaltation. They've learned nothing through the fires of exile and all that they've been through. They've learned nothing. But then there's contrite Israel. It's true. Contrite Israel still struggles with sin. And there's a beautiful passage on the latter half where they say, we can't stop sinning. Would that you rend the heavens and come down. It reminds me of Paul, who will save me from this body of death, wretched man that I am, then what does he say? Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. And and this, this part where contrite Israel, they're saying, yes, we're still sinning, but God, we've learned our lesson. Come down. You know what's amazing is God answers their prayer. 700 years later, well, it's not even now, 500 years after that, God does come down and he saves them. So they still struggle with sin, but they want that double deliverance. That's all God asks. Moving in, we're getting close to the summit now, and we have uh, the divine warrior. Next slide. So we have chapter 59 on the front end, and we have 63, 1 to 14. And in these sections, these are very aggressive sections, just powerful portraits of of God, which are really picked up by John in Revelation 19. Jesus returns as the divine warrior. And it's a portrait of Jesus that we're not used to seeing. But in these sections, God laments the situation. He's looking down and he sees apostate Israel and he sees contrite Israel and he says, who's gonna deliver these people? I'm gonna have to do it with my own arm. And then in these sections, we get this this picture of of God suiting up for battle. I just want to read you a passage in chapter 59. Take a look at verse 17. I mean, the whole section goes from 14 right down to the end of the chapter, but take a look at 5917. This is about God. This is God saying, 
What am I going to do with these people? They, they just continue to sin. They don't learn. And then there's some people who are crying out for deliverance. So he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. I, I can't help it. Let's keep reading. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. Remember what I said yesterday about the coastlands? It's the ends of the earth, the nations. So he's looking at his people. He's got to deal with them. But as he's shooting up for battle, he's looking, oh my goodness, the whole earth is just wicked. It's just like in the days of Noah. That's how slowly we progress as a people. So God suits up as a warrior. He's going to pour out his wrath. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, from the east to the west, from where the sun comes up to where the sun goes down. That's the whole world. Everyone will learn to fear me. I'm coming in vengeance. I'm coming as a warrior. I'm coming with wrath and zeal. He's going to come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. This is aggressive. And what we're supposed to derive from this is everybody's going to die at the hands of God. But then there's verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. God's ready to strike the wicked. And he knows he has a lot of wrath to pour out for the sins of the world. So he sends his son, the Redeemer, puts him on a donkey, takes him into the capital city, Jerusalem, while people cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna, a redeemer on the triumphal entry goes in. Why? Because God suited up as a warrior. This redeemer propitiates the wrath of God. Propitiation, it's a big word. What it means is God wants to strike down the wicked, so what does he do? He pours out his wrath on the unrepentant, apostate people of the world. But for the contrite, he pours out his wrath on our Redeemer. This is just, what do you do? It makes you speechless. And that's how God accomplishes both. He destroys the apostate, but saves the contrite. That's the divine warrior section on the both sides. Continuing on, we get exalted Zion. Remember, Zion is the mountain that Jerusalem is built on. Zion is that hill where the temple is. 
And in 60 and 62, and then you'll notice 65, 17 to 25, we'll talk about that in a moment, we're told that God exalts Zion, and that's especially in 60 and 62, but as he's exalting Zion, that, that temple mount where God has put his name, uh, where his footstool is, where, where the king will reign, he also says over in 65, 17 to 25, that I'm going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And, and you'll notice that that peak of 65, 17 to 25 throws off the entire symmetry of this final section. And that's the point. That accentuates it. It, it doesn't fit. Because what, what God is accomplishing through all of this is ultimately new creation, an eternal state where he can live with us forever. Unfortunately, I don't have any more time to talk about the new heavens and new earth, but it sticks out like a sore thumb there, and John picks it up in Revelation 21 and 22 and says, that's our final destination. The exalted Zion is in the new heavens and the new earth. So we're not escaping this world to go up into heaven. We're passing through heaven to get to a glorified universe where God takes his throne room and somehow he puts it in the new creation. Ah, oh, there's so much I want to say. Let me just say this. We'll let Isaiah speak for us. Uh, chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise! And shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light. This is about Zion, the light that comes from Zion. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar. Your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt. The wealth of the nation shall come to you, and so it goes. And we already see that happening. The nations setting our eyes on Jerusalem God's holy city. I can't say any more about that, though I want to. Read those chapters. Now we get to the mountain peak, the middle. And this really is the end of the book of Isaiah. In our Western thinking, what I read to you about new heavens and new earth and the place where the worm never dies and the unquenchable fire, that's the end of the book, right? Well, if we're reading linearly, but if we're not reading linearly, then the end of the book is the center of the last section. And the, the, the end of the book is chapter 61. That's why Jesus chose to open the scroll. He opened right to the end, theologically speaking, of the book of Isaiah. And he read it. And this chapter is all about the one who will make all this possible. It's about God himself who comes to accomplish everything that he's promised to accomplish. The 
Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. What is the good news to the poor? It's everything we've talked about this week. This is God's plan. He said it before he did it, but then he did it. And Jesus opened this place to say, now I'm about to do it. I will bring it to pass. Now there's much discussion in the commentaries about why did Jesus stop short? In Luke's gospel, we hear him say, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he uh, closes the scroll and says, today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. But look what's right after that. And the day of vengeance of our God. But he doesn't say that in Luke's gospel. Whether or not he said it in the synagogue, I don't know. Because sometimes the gospel writers, they, they, they give you the highlights. And they say, well, you know the context, so fill it in. But, but one theory, which I think has some merit and some truth to it, is if he ended at the end of to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he's calling in uh, the great fulfillment of the jubilee, where all the debts are canceled. And so he's really saying, this is what I'm going to accomplish in my first coming. I, I'm going to cancel all your debts by going to the cross. And then the day of vengeance of our God, well, that's the second coming, because he came first like a lamb, but he's going to return like a lion, And if he had come first as a lion, then he would have devoured us because who could stand? But he came as a lamb so that we could cover ourselves with the blood of our Passover so that when he came as a lion, he would pass over us if he saw his blood on us. I think there's some truth in that. But the problem that I see with that is this. What was the cross if not the day of vengeance of God. God poured out final judgment in the first coming of Christ. I don't know that it's fair to Jesus to say as he's hanging on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that's not vengeance. That's not the day of vengeance. It is. That's the fullness of hell. So, The day of vengeance fell in the first coming and the day of vengeance will fall on his second coming. The question is, where is your day of vengeance? You see, God will punish every sin. Where will he punish your sin? Will he punish it on the cross or will he punish it before the white throne? So I don't, particularly take that view, especially because right after that it says that the day of the Lord's favor, which is also the day of vengeance, is a day of comfort. Not for everyone, but for those who mourn. And then to go on and we see 
all the things that we are to be comforted by. But we still haven't fully answered the question, why did Jesus go to this passage? The, the reach of this passage through the book of Isaiah is so immense that we don't have time to unpack it. But I do want to give to you what I think is the most important thread to pull on. And that is the very first line. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Some commentators, and I agree with them, those who say this, say that really this is the fifth servant song. Because whoever this individual is, and some commentators would say that it's, it's either the prophet Isaiah or some anonymous prophet who wrote 200 years after Isaiah. Can't get into that. But this is not Isaiah, This is God speaking through Isaiah about another individual. Who is this individual? The key indication of who this is, it's identified by this fact that whoever this is, the spirit of the Lord God is upon him. Now something that Isaiah has been kind of sneaky about throughout the whole book is there are times where he, he mentioned that the spirit of the Lord is, is on someone. But he never is explicit about the implications of that. He never pulls it all together until we get here. And then what, what Isaiah wants us to do, what God wants us to do, is to say, who could this be? Well, it's the one who is endowed with the Holy Spirit. Who is that? Well, we, we, we see this person, this individual throughout the whole book in every major section. And sort of like Hansel and Gretel where, where they put the breadcrumbs out. Maybe better than breadcrumbs because there's no birds that come and snatch away unless Satan comes and takes it, I guess, just mixing our parables together here. Uh, (laughs) But there's a trail through the book. And so what I want to do with our last moments is to figure out who this person is that is anointed with the Holy Spirit. And in order to do this, I need to take you to several different passages. And if we hadn't spent all the time going through the whole book, then this might feel irresponsible, that I'm just pulling, 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 pulling. But what I want you to see more like dominoes, if this, then that, and if that, then this. And we can, we can trace, because there are very clear textual markers and clues that tie particular passages together. So... Let's start on this. What we find out is that whoever this is, and we know it's Jesus, so let's just, I mean, let's let the cat out of the bag and then enjoy seeing who Jesus is in the book of Isaiah. We're gonna go through every major section and to see that when Jesus opened here, he was saying, I want you to see who I am in chapters one through six. I want you to see who I am in chapters seven through 39. I want you to see who I am in chapters 40 through 55. I want you to see who I am in chapters 56 to 66. Jesus is the holy seed 
from chapters one through six. We can't go straight to Isaiah six. We gotta stop at Isaiah 11. So flip back there. Isaiah 11. This becomes a really important text. That's why I read it a couple of days ago, even though I didn't really expound upon it, because I knew where I was going, and I wanted to highlight some of the key texts that we were going to pull together at the end. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and so on right through to the end of verse five. And then interestingly, six through through nine, you get a little preview of the new heavens and new earth that Isaiah brings back in chapter 65. That's extra, can't get into it. But you see here that whoever this is in chapter 11, the spirit of the Lord is upon him. Well, who is this in chapter 11? Well, he's the shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. These are a bunch of metaphors. We're getting metaphor overload today or this week. But really, this if we had read chapter 10, what we would have seen is that God comes down and chops down a forest Some of those trees are the Assyrians, but one of the trees that God chops down is the Davidic monarchy. That's in chapter 10. God says, because you, Ahaz, didn't trust me, I'm going to chop you down, and with you, the Davidic monarchy. So the Davidic monarchy is a stump. It's called the stump of Jesse because Jesse is the father of David. So low did the Davidic monarchy get chopped down that it's not the stump of David. Got to go back a generation. It's been cut so low that it's the stump of Jesse. But don't worry, that stump is still there. Now, go back. We're going to follow this this mention of a stump. If you're reading the book of Isaiah, you're like, ah, I've heard of a stump before. You go back to Isaiah 6. Remember, uh, God said to Isaiah, I want you to go out and preach to the people so that they have no idea what you're saying, so that you will hide them, me from them. I want you to tell the truth, but I want you to preach in such a way that they won't know what you're saying. And Isaiah says, how long? How long do you want me to have this message to preach this way? And he says, until I've destroyed everyone, until I've chopped down the Davidic tree. And after I chop it down, and that's, that's not explicit there, but we get that from chapter 11. After I've chopped that tree down and it's a stump, I'm going to burn it. But out of the ashes of that stump, there's a seed. And the seed is a remnant of one. And I'm going to start over with one man. Jesus says, Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Isaiah 11 says, the shoot which comes from the seed is the one on whom the Spirit rests. Jesus then is saying, I'm the holy seed. I am the remnant of one through whom God will start over. 
and Israel will fulfill her mission, the mission given to Abraham, that through Abraham's family, all the families on the earth will be blessed. So that's, that's one. Jesus is also Emmanuel, the divine Davidic king from chapters 7 through 39. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, says Jesus from Isaiah 61. Go back to chapter 11. We've already done most of the work here. The Davidic monarchy has been chopped down so low that it's the stump of Jesse. We know that a branch from his root shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So out of the stump of Jesse, which is the tree of the Davidic monarchy, will come a Davidic king. And that Davidic king will be endowed with the Holy Spirit. He will succeed where all of the Davidic kings had failed, including David, including Solomon, including Hezekiah, including Josiah. There is a Davidic king to come who will not fail. And this Davidic king from chapter 11, we can't help but connect him with the Davidic king promised in chapter 9. Because this is right after the wake of Ahaz's failure, and God says, I'm going to bring in the Assyrians to destroy you, but don't worry. After a period of darkness, there will be light. I didn't read verses one and two, but just quickly. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That was the first part of the promised land to fall when the Assyrians came in to punish God's people, the northern part. Well, where is Zebulun and Naphtali? But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Judgment came first to Galilee, and the light shone first in Galilee. Well, what is this light that is going to shine in Galilee? From Nazareth, of all places. Well, it's a child. A child to us is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What? This is impossible. How is this divine portrait going to come true through a human Davidic king? Well, I'm not going to answer that, says Isaiah, but I will tell you this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And Isaiah doesn't resolve it. We also get Jesse in 11.1. And we say a branch from his roots. He is the branch, but also the roots of the stump of Jesse. Go to verse 10. In that day, in what day? Well, I just skipped over six through nine. Six through nine is about the new heavens and the new earth. So in that day, we're catapulted to the end of history again. The root of Jesse, 
That is the source of the Davidic king. Uh, All things come from God, Steve clearly showed us. The Davidic monarchy depends upon God. God is its root. God is its source. And the root of Jesse will stand as a signal to the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and of his resting place it shall be called glorious. So this shoot is somehow also the root Yes. Jesus says, that's me. Because this one is the one that is anointed with the Spirit. Jesus is also the suffering servant from chapters 40 through 55. Uh, He opened the scroll and said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Go to Isaiah 42, verse 1. You'll remember that this is the very first of the servant songs. It takes up no, that double deliverance. Behold my servant, but not the nation of Israel who failed. Behold my servant, the remnant of one, we know, the holy seed that comes out of a burned out stump whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And so it goes through all of the servant songs. No commentator denies that whoever this is in 42, it's the same person, the same servant as the servant in 49, the same as the servant in 50, the same as the servant in 53. So the servant in those chapters, in that third major section of the book, is endowed with the spirit of God. He's the one on whom our sin was laid. He bore our iniquities. He made his soul an offering for our guilt, and by his wounds, we are healed. There's just one more, if you can believe it. We've done the first section, the second section, and the third section. The fourth section, Jesus is the Redeemer and the Divine Warrior from chapters 56 to 66. Go back to Isaiah 59, verse 20. Remember, we said that God suited up for battle. Another aside, I mean, what what does it sound like when I read those, those, those verses? The armor of God from Ephesians 6. Did you know that when you put on the armor of God, you're you're suiting up for battle with God? And then we're told that a redeemer will come to Zion. What's not clear in the text is, is there a distinction between the divine warrior and the redeemer? Because throughout the book of Isaiah, God alone is the redeemer. There's this weird paradox. He is the warrior, but he's also the redeemer. It makes sense in Christ, right? That, That he bore the wrath of God on our behalf. But what's amazing about this is that In the book of Isaiah, the warrior and the redeemer are the same one. Now look at verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you. You have God speaking to God, warrior speaking to redeemer. My spirit, says the warrior, 
that is upon you to the Redeemer. And my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus is the holy seed. He is the divine Davidic king. He is the suffering servant. He is the divine warrior and the divine redeemer. And at the very end, thematically, theologically of the book, that one person, that one individual that ties together all of these portraits stands on the top of a glorified Zion looking out to the new heavens and the new earth in chapter 65 and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news. The year of the Lord's favor and a day of vengeance to comfort those who mourn. And Jesus says in Nazareth to initiate his ministry, that's me. That's me. I wish I could explain that to you. But you're in the hands of him. He has to unseal this for you. Before we conclude our time together, people are going to ask you, what did you do this summer? And I hope you'll mention that you came to NBC. And I hope you'll talk about the beach. I hope you'll talk about the kids' ministry and the youth ministry. And maybe you've got another vacation planned. You might want to talk about other things that you do in the summer. One thing that I hope you'll mention when somebody says, what did you do this summer? I hope you'll say, I went mountain climbing. And I'll say, really? Yeah. It was a mountain much higher than Everest. In fact, we're told, right, at the very beginning that Zion will become the highest hill, the highest mountain in all of God's creation. I hope you see why. You see, many people have visited the mountain range of Isaiah, but very few have climbed it. People have parachuted in and helicoptered out. People have looked at the pictures that other people took while they visited the mountain range of Isaiah, but very few people have ever climbed it. My sister is crazy, and I love her, but I, t I say she's crazy because on her honeymoon, what her and her husband did is they, they took a helicopter into the middle of nowhere in Newfoundland. And there was no exit strategy except for them to navigate their way out. That was their honeymoon. So they spent their whole time just trying to stay alive. This is a metaphor for marriage. <laughs> just kidding, I, lo I love you, Ange. Um, but that's what we've done. We dropped into this book and then we navigated our way out. I want to show you the mountain range that you climbed. That, 
Do you realize that every peak and valley, every plateau, we've talked about every single one of them. You've been at every one of those places. So that I could ask you, that, that tall blue peak, don't let me down here, that tall blue peak in the middle of 7 to 39, what is that? 24 to 27. 24 to 27 where God hosts a, a banquet for us. Having raised us from the dead, he swallows up death. What about that, that green plateau at the beginning of 40 to 55? Where were you there? What happened there? God delivered his people from Babylon. And then that, that high mountain peak at the, at the end there, that's where the suffering servant delivers us from sin. Uh, if you take a picture, honestly, take your phones out, take your... Take your um, your camera's out, take a picture of that mountain range because you climbed it. And when somebody asks you what you did this summer, I want you to say, I climbed this mountain range, every peak and valley. Two thousand years ago, Jesus took a scroll in a backwater synagogue in Galilee of the nations, where the darkness first encompassed the promised land. And there the light began to shine. He took the scroll and he took his time getting to the end of the book. Because you can't just flip, you gotta roll, roll, roll. He read from Isaiah 61, and he said, Today in your hearing, this is fulfilled. What did Jesus mean? This is what he meant. I am the holy seed, the remnant of one from Israel. I am the shoot from the stump of Jesse that will rise out of the ashes of Israel's destruction in the line of the Davidic kings. I am the root of Jesse who will enfold the nations into God's covenant promises with Israel. I am the child king, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, and I will reign over a government of peace and on my throne of David forever. I am the suffering servant who takes away the sins of the world. I am the one who exalts the contrite and humbles the haughty and the self-exalted. I am the one who glorifies Jerusalem. I am the signal on the hill of Zion to call my people back and Jacob will lead the nations in a procession to worship me on the highest mountain in all of reality. I am the one who makes all things new. I am the one who creates a new heavens and a new earth in which we shall dwell forever and ever. I am the king who will raise you from the dead. I am the king who will host a great feast 
on my holy hill. And for dessert, I will swallow up death forever. And we shall behold his glory. Praise be to Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, this is, um, this takes us to the place where we are beyond words. And we pray that the Spirit would pray for us. Jesus, give us a bigger view of who you are. Help us to humble ourselves before you that you might exalt us so we could live with you forever. Now I pray one last time this week, unseal this book that we may worship you. In your name we pray.